My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It's not exactly breaking news that flying can suck, especially this year. Last week, about half of the flights out of Pearson were delayed and more than 700 were cancelled. Air Canada ranked number one in the world for delays. Just the um, the, the check-in notice from Air Canada said, uh, leave lots of time. Customs was about three hours, got through, flight cancelled from Toronto to Boston. Worst lineup I've ever seen. They already told us we'll make, miss our flight. I've been waiting for like maybe 30 minutes now. I expect to wait another maybe an hour. And my flight leaves in 20 minutes, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it. But right now... There are two kinds of bad airports in this world. There are regular bad airports, and then there is Pearson International Airport. The stories you hear coming out of Pearson right now are so frustrating and awful that they beg for someone or something to blame. The government for COVID restrictions, the airlines for greed, the airport authority for understaffing and poor planning, customs, fellow passengers, inflation, weather, whatever. Just let us know who to be mad at. The truth? It's a lot of some of those things. It's less of others. And in the mix are a few other problems you've never even heard of. So this is the story of how Canada's largest travel hub went from tolerable to terrible. This is how Pearson fell apart. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Richard Warnica is a business features writer for the Toronto Star. Hey, Richard. Hey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. I think the whole country wants to know uh, what the hell is up with Pearson at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I certainly did. It was one of those things where anytime I went online, all I saw was horror stories and I, I really had no idea what was actually happening. Maybe let's rewind for a bit before the pandemic, because we want to tell the story of this airport. So prior to to COVID and to all the nightmares that have happened as we kind of come out of it, what was Pearson's reputation, you know, as a, a big city airport in the world? I mean, it was mixed, I think. I think they had had some some pretty high profile stumbles. You know, they did a runway refurbishment a couple of years ago that caused a ton of pl- delays, ton of cancellations. In Canada, I think it had a reputation as as, oh, you don't want to go to Pearson. Oh, Pearson can be a real nightmare. But I, I think part of that is is because Pearson is really the only big global hub airport in Canada. There's really nothing to compare it to. So before the pandemic, it was, it had its issues for sure, but no one would have called it a disaster. It wasn't like making the list of the worst airports in the world. Right. So let's let's discuss, I guess, how many months now, the last three months or four months that people have really been coming back to the airport for recreational travel in in large numbers. And before you dug in and went out to Pearson and started really reporting this story, 
What kinds of things had you heard? What did you expect? Yeah, so for me, it started with, um, I had a much delayed trip to New York uh, this spring. And in the lead up to that trip, I, I started hearing all these reports of people being stuck in like hours long customs lines at Pearson. So much so that, uh, you know, me and my friends who were going on this trip, we kept emailing back and forth like, is this going to happen? Do we need to be at the airport six hours early? And 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 one of our one of our friends actually went to the airport four hours before our flight took off. You know, this is in April when we started seeing on Twitter or TikTok or Instagram, wherever you're looking, you know, pictures of the departure hall in Pearson just packed with like unruly numbers of people and people sending out messages saying, I got here three hours early and I didn't make my flight. So that's when it first sort of clicked for me. It didn't really become something I wanted to look into professionally until it kept going for a couple months, right? Until the problem started evolving. You know, it went from there's too many people in the departure preclearance zone to there's way too many people in the customs halls and planes are getting stuck on the runway. And then we start hearing these stories of, of like lost bags. You know, I, I flew into Newark um, for this story and the Air Canada office at Newark, there was just like these wall of miss of missing baggage in front of it. Like uh-huh. had I wanted to go into that office to talk to someone, I would have had to like literally climb over this like moat of missing suitcases. Like I'm always interested in in stories that everybody is talking about, but that I don't understand. And it really started to become one of those in sort of late spring, early summer for me. So as you began reporting it, and I want to talk about the people first, because they are sprinkled uh, throughout your long feature. You know, you sort of go from hearing things secondhand and thirdhand to to hearing warnings. Uh, You spoke to dozens of travelers directly. How true were those horror stories we were hearing? What was the universal experience? And maybe just tell us a few stories. Yeah, so I mean, I think... It remains the case that flying through Pearson, your odds of having a horror story happen to you are are still pretty bad, right? The odds are you are going to go there. You'll probably have a delayed flight, but you still probably won't have a cancellation. You probably won't lose your bags. But the percentage of people who were going through horrible things and the sort of extent to which that horror was happening had really gone up. Uh, Rebecca Stephen, who was one woman I spoke to, who had a trip planned to New York. Uh, She was going for Pride weekend. She was going to see friends she hadn't seen in a long time. Gets her boyfriend to drop her at the airport for a 7 a.m. flight at at like 4 a.m. and gets there. And it it looks like like a hog pen. Like there's no room for anyone to move around in this sort of pre-clearance zone, but eventually gets through, gets through security, um, sits down, spends a couple minutes on TikTok and then notification on her email, her flight's canceled. Okay. Goes to customer service. No one at customer service eventually gets rebooked on a flight. That flight's canceled. Tries to get on another flight. That flight's canceled. Um, all the way until four o'clock. So she's supposed to leave at about seven. And now it's, you know, 3.50 and she's sitting in this departure zone and the pilots show up, but nobody else does. At least she didn't see them. And at like 3.50, an announcement comes over the megaphone. This one is canceled too. Um, We don't have enough staff. And so at that point, like everyone leaps up and goes, 
rushing back to customer service um, because, you know, I'll, I'll tell you when I was going through there once, the customer service line was only about 20 people deep. And I asked people sort of midway through, they'd already been waiting, waiting two hours. And she was going into a customer service line that was going to have hundreds of people. But what really, really disturbed her and the reason she reached out to the star, she actually sent us an email was, you know, everybody takes off the, the Air Canada person at the gate disappears. And there's this elderly couple there. English is not their first language. Both of them are in wheelchairs and, you know, they're not mobile wheelchair users. They've been placed in these wheelchairs because they can't walk distances and, and nobody comes to help them. Right. And so she goes over to them after about 20 minutes and it's like, are you guys okay? Can I do anything for you? And it's clear, like they don't speak super good English. They're confused. They don't know what's happening. They feel completely abandoned. And so she has to go on this kind of odyssey through the airport to try to find someone from Air Canada to take responsibility for these two stranded senior citizens. And, you know, the story she tells me is that eventually she like waylays an Air Canada employee sprinting through the airport and convinces her finally to stop. And the woman tells her she just doesn't have time. And, and finally, Rebecca's like, you have to make time. Someone has to take care of these people. And that experience to her was, is what pushed her over the edge. You know, she went back to customer service and just said, cancel my flight. Like, I can't keep doing this. She yeah. just canceled her entire trip. And I heard multiple stories of people who, you know, there's one woman I spoke to who was supposed to go from New York to London. And after about 24 hours in Canadian airports, <laughs> just booked a flight on Delta to fly back to New York because she just couldn't take it anymore. So that's kind of the the prototypical horror story. Um, there's lots of lots of stories, really sad stories about people missing connections and then being forced to spend the night in Pearson. I spoke to one woman, they'd come from Tel Aviv or trying to get to Atlanta. And, you know, they end up sleeping on the Pearson floor with their three month old. So yeah, that's kind of the, that's your garden variety Pearson horror story in the summer of 2022. I am like anxious and angry just listening to you talk on behalf of these people. I don't know <laughs> how they do it. Yeah. So you mentioned before the pandemic, you know, Pearson was maybe not great, but certainly tolerable for a really, really large airport. Can you quantify for us uh, with some numbers how bad it has been at Pearson over the past few months? Like, how bad has it gotten? Yeah, I mean, there's a chart in my story that just looks at sort of daily cancellations per day. And, and a cancellation is... Like it's your nightmare scenario in an, in an airline because you've already paid a crew, you've paid for that departure slot. So they tend to be really rare and they have just spiked. If you look up my story and you look at the chart, it looks like, um, I don't know if you've ever done like a hill session on an exercise bike, <laughs> but you know the part where it's just like spiking up and you can't feel your legs, you're working so hard. That's what like the Pearson cancellation charts look like. If you lump together... International and domestic, it's about 8,000 flights had been canceled. But at the time my story came out, that data is from a company called Sirium. As of last Friday, according to FlightAware, which is another one of these companies that tracks airline data, Pearson had the most delayed flights this summer of any airport in the world. And it was coming up to almost half in some cases. So like your odds of actually getting out of the airport on the time it says on your ticket are like one in two. Right. One of the things I did in this story was I would wake up a lot of mornings and I would just start scrolling the departures list on, um, on the Pearson Airport website. 
And from about 6 a.m. on, most mornings, it would just be this sea of red for cancellations and yellow for delays, just delay, delay, delay. And some of them were like eight, nine hours. Wow. Can you sketch out maybe, uh, and you do a good job of this in your piece, and and I've noticed it um, just in media coverage of the situation. Before we get into to what you dug up, how has the buck been passed around for this from like governments to airlines to the airport itself? Like who's actually taking responsibility here and what do they say? Yeah, I mean, the reality is nobody's taking responsibility. I, I right. think that, you know, there's three major players here. There's the airlines, there's the airport authority, the Greater Toronto Airport Authority, and there's the federal government, which regulates transportation. From really from the start of this in the spring, the GTAA and the airlines have placed the blame on the federal government. Their messaging at that point, at least, was very clear. It was very focused on COVID restrictions and the added burden that that was causing in the airport. I feel bad for for the minister, Omel Gabra, in that like one off the cuff statement has come to be taken in for the full federal government response. But he did at one point essentially say that the problem was that people aren't used to flying anymore and they're taking too much time going through security. What very few people addressed publicly in the messaging from any three of those was why the airlines were allowed to book this many flights this quickly after this massive complicated infrastructure had been, you know, at, at sometimes 80% shut down over a two-year period. So you sort of knew who was blaming who. You'd heard these anecdotal stories. You had letters from readers uh, talking about their horrible experiences. What did you do to try to get to the bottom of uh, what is really going on here and, and where the blame should lie? You know, when you're reporting a story like this and you're, and you're essentially trying to explain a process that's going wrong to people, you're almost at like a you're at a party and you don't know who the host is and you're trying to figure out who the host is. So you're just walking through being like, hey, who should I talk to? Hey, who should I talk to? Hey, who should right. I talk to? And, you know, I talk to experts all around the world. I talk to experts in Canada. I talk to people who work physically on the ground there. I, I talk to people who work with the unions there. Um and, and more than COVID regulations, the answer that kept up, kept coming over and over again was nobody has enough staff and everybody knew they didn't have enough staff. Well, I, I should say that, that the airlines would and will deny that they knew they didn't have enough staff or that, in fact, they didn't have enough staff. And I should be clear about that. But right. about everyone else in the system told me that they believed the airport you know, 400 employers in the airport, the airlines weren't ready from a labor perspective to be operating at this scale. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. One of the experts you talk to says, uh, quote, the airlines have been very greedy, and he actually instructs you to 
quote him on that. <laughs> yeah. What's he referring to and, and how did we end up in that space then? Yeah, that's John Graddock from uh, McGill, um, who's a former Air Canada executive and has been teaching in the airline management program there for a long time. What he means is that, you know, normally an airline will make its summer schedule in October the previous year. You know, they'll make some small changes as the year goes on, but that's the bulk of it. That's the base of it. And that gives everybody in the system. So all the third party industries, the businesses that do things like fueling planes or putting on food, their own staff, the airport, the customs, a long time to understand, okay, how many people are going to be coming through this airport? What kind of staffing levels do we have? If you look back to October of last year, nobody had any idea what this summer would look like. And, and I, I have a ton of sympathy for the airlines in that. Um, we were just in the middle of Delta. Nobody knew Omicron was going to come. Right. And so they put out what was effectively like a provisional schedule in October. Then Omicron hits, um, tons of cancellations, a real collapse in, in traffic again in late December, January. But then from an airline perspective, that clears pretty quickly. And by the end of February, Air Canada, at least, is ready to assume that demand is going to pick up like crazy this summer. So at the end of February, they put out a big increase in their traffic to a ton of these secondary U.S. markets all over the world, to the tourist destinations. And, and what John's talking about when he said the airlines are greedy is he was talking about the fact that, you know, February, March, they start seeing that projected demand is going through the roof. People are starting to book these summer holidays that they haven't for two years. And they say, we need that money. John believes, and I think there's a fair bit of evidence to back him up, that airlines in general should have known at that point that the infrastructure they needed from the airports to their own staff to all those third-party businesses would not be ready to handle the amount of traffic they were planning at that point, but they went ahead and planned it anyway. So that's what he means when he's talking about the airlines being greedy. I know this is a really dumb question with a really complex answer, but why didn't they just hire a ton more staff and ramp up as soon as they saw this going on? Yeah, I mean, I think they would say they tried. And there's a couple factors going on. One is that, uh, and this is happening in, in airports all over the world, um, a, a ton of staff were let go during the pandemic. You know, uh, Air Canada lost about 50% of its staff. There are airport businesses uh, where I talk to union people, you know, as much as 80%. and a lot of those people didn't like stick around and wait for the airport to come back. And in Toronto, a lot of them went and worked in the warehouses around Pearson, which were absolutely booming during COVID. And, you know, there's one expert I talked to who said that, you know, when you're living your normal life and you have a demanding job, you don't have a lot of time to stop and think, would I rather have another job? And this kind of created this mass opportunity for people who work at an airport, who do kind of crazy overnight shifts, who even now the pay is not super competitive. Uh, it's very physical work often to say, you know what, I like another job better. And so it wasn't as simple as just saying, okay, you know, there were 55,000 employees at Pearson, I think, uh, not directly by the airport, but through all those different companies before the pandemic, saying to say 25,000 of them, okay, time to get off your couch and come to work again. 
most of them had moved on. And the airport, like other businesses in Canada, other businesses around the world, is facing a labor shortage, especially for these not particularly high paying, socially difficult, physically difficult tasks. And then the other factor that's really important to think about is, you know, I don't remember who said it to me, but one of the airline people I spoke to was like, you know, people assume that because these are not highly paid jobs, they are not highly skilled jobs. And in the airport, that's not the case. Like to keep an airport moving, to turn around a plane with no delay, to unload bags and get them to the terminal while reloading that fast, get people through customs. You know, those are minutely time-sensitive jobs that take people with experience to do. If you are bringing in, say, 30% new staff, 40%, in some places, 50% new staff to these complex, time-sensitive jobs, you are having to train people while they're doing it as things are falling apart, and you're having people on shifts where most of the people are new. Like, just imagine... You know, where one of us worked, if you all of a sudden tried to put out a newspaper with 50% of the people had no newspaper experience, yeah. you know, your Toronto Star is going to suck for quite yeah. a while if you do that, right? Your podcast would suck if, you know, you come into work tomorrow and your producer is the only guy you could hire because there's a labor shortage right. and uh, has never listened to a podcast before. That covers, you know, to me, the main dynamic at play in terms of staffing and over demand and under supply. But um, and I know we can't we can't go on forever here. So I would urge people and we'll link to it in the show notes to check out your entire feature. There are two other aspects I want to get at quickly because they were both news to me. Can you first explain uh, what's happened to the cargo business over the past couple of years? Yeah, so this was happening before the pandemic, but it really accelerated during the pandemic, which is, um, you know, everyone knows online shopping has gone through the roof. Um, the demand for people who can take packages, goods um, from one place to another quickly has soared and airlines have looked at that like a business opportunity. So that cargo space under an airplane, they call it the belly there's now way more competition for that belly space from, you know, online shopping primarily, but other things like that, where you are selling commercial goods and transporting them from one place to the other. Air Canada has really doubled down on this business. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think their revenue year over year from cargo went up something like 42% in the pandemic. And part of that was because literally when people weren't flying, they converted some planes entirely to cargo planes. But now a lot of that business is literally, you can watch it. If you stand at the departure window, I did this, drove my wife crazy. We were on vacation and I'm just standing at a departure window, staring at planes, loading and unloading. She wants to go on vacation and her husband won't leave the airport. Exactly. Exactly. It's the worst place in the world to be. And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. But you can look at, they bring out these mini conveyor belts, essentially, and they have these uh, these cargo packages that their packages are stuffed in and they'll come off the conveyor belt, the full ones, and then they'll put new ones on. And that's a that's a huge part of the airline business now. But like any other part of the airline business, it takes people and it takes time and the airlines don't have enough of either of those right now. And finally, can you explain sixth freedom travel to me? Because this is something I had never heard of before. And it made me look at departure and arrivals lists in a completely different way. I had no idea this was happening. What is it? 
Yeah, I didn't either. And, uh, you know, I feel like we could do like one of those like seven hour deep dives on this where no one would listen because I find it so <laughs> fascinating. But like, so sixth freedom travel is the sixth freedom in air travel is essentially the idea that if you run an airline in Canada or the US, you should have the freedom to take people from one country through your country to another country. And for Air Canada, that is a huge and growing part of the business. What they are trying to do with Pearson is use it fundamentally as a hub to take customers from primarily sort of second tier U.S. markets like St. Louis, Raleigh, Denver to Toronto and on to Europe, the Middle East or through Vancouver and on to Asia, um, because those are really, really valuable flights, right? If you're selling uh, someone a ticket from you know, this example of this person I talked to, Tel Aviv to Atlanta round trip, that's worth a lot more than selling a ticket from Winnipeg to Toronto round trip. So if you go to the airport now and you look at the U.S. departures list in Pearson, you see a ton of flights to, again, these second-tier U.S. markets. And Air Canada is establishing those routes only partially to serve Canadian domestic demand to like Nashville. You know, there's some demand. People are going there for a bachelorette weekend or to see a, a hockey game. But the real reason they are massively expanding those routes is because they want to serve a Nashville crowd who wants to go to London and thinks they can do it cheaper going through Toronto than going through New York or going through Atlanta, one of the hubs. Again, makes a lot of business sense. If you are a huge global airline, that's going to be part of your business, but it puts a ton of strain on your airport because to sell that kind of flight, you have to have a lot of planes leaving the airport at about the same time in the morning. So, you know, all those 6.30, flights, those are often the departing end of a sixth freedom flight because you have to get down to Nashville or St. Louis on time to get those passengers back to Pearson to then fly on to London or Berlin or all the way on to Abu Dhabi. Again, this is something I had never heard of before digging into this story, and it is something that came up a lot when people told me that they don't think Pearson is super well set up to handle this level of sixth freedom traffic. And it's also a big reason why looking at the pure numbers of passengers or flights and comparing them to pre-pandemic doesn't necessarily give you the full story of the problems at Pearson. Because one of the big problems is that these peaks, which are often exacerbated by this sixth freedom travel, are getting way worse. You know, to give you one example, um, when I flew to Newark for this story, I flew at about 2 p.m., um, you know, I'd been following all these crazy stories about going through U.S. Customs. So I show up three hours early. There was zero people in front of me to get into U.S. preclearance and two people in the security line. And so I asked, you know, I'm asking everybody I go through there, what's going on? I thought this was a disaster. And they're like, you should have been here half an hour ago. And so I went back at 4 a.m., and it was insane because everybody's trying to get on those 7 a.m. flights. Because that's how the air the airports have scheduled them. The last thing that I want to ask you is just what you'll take away from this, I guess, having learned so much about the inner workings of a complex machine uh, like Pearson, for good or ill. <laughs> when when you finish all of that reporting, 
Does it make you more empathetic for what the airport is dealing with and the people they're dealing with? Or does it make you more frustrated because, you know, you can see what these problems are and there are ways to solve them? I mean, I have a ton of sympathy and empathy for the people on the ground working, like the actual airline employees. I mean, it sucks to fly through there a couple of times a year right now. Can you imagine that's your job? every single day. And there are stressed out, tired people screaming at you. And it has nothing to do with anything you've done. So a ton of sympathy for the actual workers on the ground. I don't know. I I, I had a line in my story about how this seemed quintessentially Canadian to me in the sense that, you know, I kept on asking people who was responsible for making sure that Pearson, which is by far the most important transport hub in Canada, you know, it's where $45 billion in trade goes through every year, it was ready to reopen after the pandemic. And again and again, people would either laugh or they'd say, well, that's the question, because there wasn't any one body responsible for this, right? right. And... Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time reporting on institutions that are full of good people that haven't been well served by government and kind of fell down during the pandemic. And this one kind of stacked onto that list for me. And because they have this quasi-independent body, the GTAA, I, I think government gets to feel like they can dodge the responsibility a little bit. But fundamentally, at the end, the federal government is the regulator this is a massive piece of economic and national security importance to this country. And it just kind of, it reiterates some difficult feelings, I would say, I have about the state of Canadian institutions generally coming out of COVID. The only thing more Canadian will be when we form a committee to study exactly what went wrong here. Oh, um, well, you know, maybe we'll have a royal commission and just just wrap it all together. And then I can see you in line for the royal commission doing daily stories on that for another three years. I'll, uh, I'll read the redacted report. <laughs> Thanks so much, Richard. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Richard Warnica writing in the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can, of course, email us hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us 416-935-5935 and leave us a voicemail. You can get The Big Story wherever you get podcasts, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Doesn't matter. You pick, listen there, rate us, review us, say nice things, and we'll be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.